Welcome to the last month at the Federal Circuit, a look at recent Federal Circuit decisions impacting the intellectual property community. Finnegan partner Charles Collins Chase joins us now to discuss a few recent decisions addressing patent eligibility under Section 101 of the Patent Act. Charles, let's first talk about the Federal Circuit's order on July 31, denying a petition by American Axle Manufacturing, Inc. for an en banc rehearing over one of its patents. The order was contentious, to say the least. The 6-6 vote included two concurring opinions and three dissenting opinions. First off, how unusual is it to see so many separate opinions on a rehearing order? And did you expect that? You're absolutely right. This was certainly a contentious case. Although it is uncommon to see so many separate opinions in a denial of en banc rehearing, it seems to happen far more frequently when it comes to Section 101. In the Berkheimer versus HB case, for example, there were two concurrences in the denial of en banc rehearing and one dissent. And in Athena versus Mayo, there were even more separate opinions than here in American Axel. Four opinions concurring with the denial of en banc rehearing and four dissents for eight opinions in total. I think this reflects the contentious nature of the Section 101 issue and the difficulty the Federal Circuit has had reaching agreement on how to apply the Supreme Court's Alice and Mayo test. Okay. And before we get into all those opinions later, let's just step back for a second. You've discussed this case on the podcast before. Remind us, what was the patent at issue and what were the claims? That's right. We did a podcast on the original panel opinion last November. So to remind everybody, the patent in suit relates to prop shafts with liners that are designed to dampen vibrations. Prop shafts are used in cars to transmit power in a driveline, and they're prone to vibrations which cause undesirable noise. Using a liner inside the prop shaft can dampen those vibrations, and the patent claims at issue recite methods of manufacturing a shaft assembly that includes tuning a liner to dampen multiple types of vibration. And a federal circuit panel affirmed the district court's finding the claims ineligible, first in October and then in a revised opinion issued on July 31. What reasoning did the panel give? The court's original opinion in October 2019, which was authored by Judge Dyke and joined by Judge Toronto, affirmed the district court's judgment that all of the claims were patent ineligible because they are directed to a natural law. The majority described that natural law as, quote, Hooke's Law and possibly other natural laws in a particular context. The majority rejected the patentee's arguments that tuning a liner to dampen multiple kinds of vibrations is a complex undertaking that involves more than just Hooke's Law. The panel majority also took issue with what it felt was a lack of specificity in the claims themselves as to how the claim methods apply Hooke's Law to achieve vibration damping. The majority concluded that even if the claim methods were more complex than simply applying Hooke's Law, That complexity was not enough to make the claims patent eligible because the claims did not recite physical structures or steps for achieving the claimed damping. The majority stated that the claims were no more than an invitation to engage in a conventional trial and error process. Now, what about the revised opinion? What was the reasoning given there? In July, the original panel granted panel rehearing and issued a revised opinion, as you said. The full court divided evenly 6-6 on whether to grant en banc, so that split vote means that the revised panel opinion stands. And the most obvious change is that the revised opinion now vacates the district court's judgment that claim one of the asserted patent is patent ineligible. The revised opinion still affirms the district court's judgment that independent claim 22 is ineligible because it is directed to no more than Hooke's Law. So whereas the panel previously held all claims ineligible, it now distinguishes somewhat between two of the independent claims. 
Now, to get a little bit into the panel's reasoning in its revised opinion, the panel did rely on some of the same reasoning as in its original opinion, but it altered several things. For example, it changed its description of what natural law was at issue. Remember, previously the panel said the claims were directed to Hooke's Law and possibly other natural laws. And in the revised opinion, it states that Claim 22 is directed to Hooke's Law alone. The panel also changed its analysis of why Claim 22 is patent ineligible. The original opinion stated that it was directed to a natural law, but the revised opinion states that Claim 22 covers an application of a natural law without limiting the claimed method to a particular way of achieving the claimed result. The panel analogized to some old Supreme Court cases, the opinion Leroy v. Tatum from 1852 and O'Reilly v. Morse from 1853. The panel held that Claim 22, like Claim 8 from the O'Reilly v. Morse case, is directed to a natural law because, quote, it clearly invokes a natural law and nothing more to accomplish a desired result. Now, the panel essentially doubled down on something that was already present in its original opinion and that we discussed in the podcast last November, a focus on whether the claims are sufficiently specific in their description of how the methods achieve the claim result of tuning the liner to dampen vibration. When we did this podcast back last year, we discussed the commingling of sections 101 and 112, and the revised opinion, if anything, blends those sections together even more. As to claim one, which the revised opinion vacates the district court's judgment, the revised opinion explains that the claim is more general than claim 22 because it permits tuning the liner using characteristics besides those needed in Hooke's law, namely mass and stiffness. The majority also pointed out that claim one requires positioning the liner. And so it was unable to conclude that claim one was directed to nothing more than Hooke's law. But I think it's important to remember that the panel is not holding that claim one is patent eligible. It's just vacating the district court's decision that it's ineligible. And in fact, the panel decision now guides the district court to go back and consider whether claim one is directed to an abstract idea, which is something that the district court already expressed some interest in doing in its opinion that's being reviewed by the court now. So I don't give claim one much chance of survival on remand. And obviously the panel's decision was not unanimous, as you pointed out. In her dissent, <laughs> Judge Kimberly Moore said that the majority's opinion departs from the court's precedents and that it, quote, sent shockwaves throughout the patent community, unquote. What did the majority get wrong, according to Judge Moore? Yeah, so Judge Moore's original dissent was quite fervent, and this one is no different. She writes that holding claims to what is a sort of industrial age type product, an automotive drive shaft has sent shockwaves through the patent community. And she quotes a variety of sources expressing displeasure with the opinion, including a US representative and several amicus briefs filed by bio, IPO, law professors, and others. The dissent identifies what Judge Moore believes are three critical errors of law that she thinks elevates Section 101 beyond its statutory language and Supreme Court precedent. Her first point is that the claims do not contain any natural law, and thus that the majority erred by holding that the claims are directed to the natural law. She points out that they don't articulate any natural law, unlike in the Fluke, Mayo, and O'Reilly cases, and says that the claim can't be directed to a natural law when none is discernible in the claim or even in the specification. Judge Moore notes that the definition of the natural law that the claims are directed to has shifted during the case, with the patent challenger, their expert, and the district court all stating that Claim 22 was directed to two natural laws working together, Hooke's Law and Friction Damping. Judge Moore points out that the original panel opinion described the natural law as Hooke's law and possibly other natural laws, but has now changed tack and says that it's just Hooke's law alone. Judge Moore also argues, and this is really important for this case, 
that the majority has created a new Section 101 test, which she dubs the nothing more test. And she states that the patentee should have been given an opportunity to brief the case under the new test. She also believes that the panel made a fact finding in the first instance that Claim 22 was directed to nothing more than Hooke's Law when the district court and the patent challenger's expert believe that two natural laws were at issue. Judge Moore's second point is that the majority failed to consider unconventional claim elements, which she believes render the claims patent eligible. And she points specifically to the fact that the liners inside the prop shafts had never been used before to attenuate one of the types of vibrations. She also points to dependent claims that specify the physical properties and shape of the liners. Finally, Judge Moore's third point is she believes the majority improperly blends together section 101 and 112. She calls this enablement on steroids, another colorful turn of phrase. She objects to the majority requiring the claims themselves, as opposed to the patent specification, to teach a skilled artisan how to tune a liner to attenuate vibration. She believes the majority's new commingling of 101 and 112 is turning fact questions into legal ones that the court should not be answering for the first time on appeal. And the judges who voted to rehear the, the case on Bonk shared similar concerns. What were they? So there were three dissents, one by Judge Stoll, one by Judge Newman, and one by Judge O'Malley, and they all addressed sort of different aspects of the majority opinion. Judge Stoll had concerns about the nothing more test. She disagreed that it was grounded in precedent, including O'Reilly versus Morse. She also objected to what Judge Moore mentioned, the blurring of the line between patent eligibility under Section 101 and enablement under Section 112. Judge Stoll states that quote, a claim can be specific enough to be directed to an application of the law of nature without reciting how to perform all the claim steps. And finally, Judge Stoll objected to the panel opinion because she felt it improperly resolved questions of fact for the first time on appeal. Judge Newman's dissent largely focuses on the effect the panel decision may have on innovation, although she also expresses her view that the panel improperly mixed together 101 and 112 and misinterpreted the O'Reilly versus Morse case. Judge Newman notes that all technology is based on scientific principles, and she believes the panel opinion departs from precedent in failing to distinguish between the scientific principle and the application of that principle. She states that the panel's decision, quote, has moved the system of patents from its once reliable incentive to innovation and commerce to a litigation gamble. And in the third dissent, Judge O'Malley focuses on whether the panel opinion adheres to the proper role of an appellate court. She notes that the majority adopted and applied this new nothing more test, which was not proposed by either party, without any briefing. And she also objects to the majority's decision to distinguish between two of the independent claims, claims one and 22, even though no party argued that the claims are meaningfully different. You've mentioned O'Reilly versus Morse. This case seems to take center stage in this overall dispute. What does that case say? And why was it so important in American Axel? That's right. O'Reilly versus Morris, again, from 1853, really shows up in this revised panel opinion and in the concurrences and dissents, even though it was barely mentioned in the original panel decision last year, was not mentioned at all by the district court. It's now a major focus. The case involves Samuel Morse's invention of the telegraph. Some of his claims were held to be patent eligible, but one claim in particular, claim eight, was held to be ineligible because it read on essentially any means of using electric current to print characters at a distance and it didn't recite any specific components that would be used to perform that method. The panel majority here believes that Claim 22 is just like Morse's Claim 8, while the dissenters disagree. Now, although the judges dissect the case in quite a bit of detail and dispute why the Supreme Court reached the conclusion it did in that case, 
The real dispute here over O'Reilly versus Morse is whether the panel majority is simply applying the case or is instead extending it and creating a new test. The dissenters argue that the majority is improperly extending O'Reilly to form this nothing more test. The majority in both concurrences argue that it's not a new test at all, and that instead it's just an application of precedent, including the O'Reilly versus Morse case. And so I guess that is the question, right? The question seems to be, has a new test been formed for patent eligibility? And if so, what is it? And if not, how will we know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. But unfortunately, the answer is not totally clear. About half the court thinks there's a new nothing more test, and half the court believes that the phrasing is simply an application of precedent from O'Reilly versus Morse and other cases. If there is a new test, it's that a claim will be found to be directed to a natural law if the claim on its face clearly invokes a natural law and nothing more to achieve a claimed result. Now, I'm not suggesting that it would be easy to delineate when this so-called nothing more test would apply. But we do have one example from this case in view of the court distinguishing between claims 1 and 22, with claim 22 invoking Hooke's law and nothing more, and the broader claim 1 apparently invoking other parameters or, or natural laws. I think what this case signals is that the court is looking really closely at whether claims themselves contain enough detail to show that they are not directed to a natural law. It's not enough now if the claims recite a method with an intended result if they don't also spell out pretty specifically how to achieve that result. This really, to me, does seem to be injecting some aspects of Section 112 into the Section 101 inquiry. And American Axel wasn't the only notable recent Section 101 decision, of course. And one issued August 3rd, the full federal circuit refused to review a panel decision reviving two Illumina DNA test patents that a lower court had invalidated for claiming only a natural phenomenon. Why did the panel conclude that the patents were eligible and why is this decision significant? Yeah, so this is another Section 101 case where the full court declined to do unbank rehearing, but where the panel reissued the opinion in the dissent with some changes. Here, the panel upheld methods of preparing a fraction of DNA and distinguished the claim methods of preparation from the types of claims that we've typically seen be held patent eligible, like diagnostic methods. I think a little background about the technology is helpful here. This case involves similar subject matter to that in the Ariosa Diagnostics versus Sequinom case from back in 2015, namely fetal DNA that circulates in a pregnant woman's blood plasma. In the Sequinom case, the Federal Circuit held that claims directed to methods of detecting paternally inherited DNA of fetal origin in the mother's blood were patent ineligible because they were directed to the natural phenomenon that that cell-free fetal DNA exists in the mother's blood. In this case, however, the claims cover methods of preparing a fraction of cell-free DNA that is enriched in fetal DNA, which makes it easier to determine if the fetal DNA contains any harmful genetic alterations. Because the majority of extracellular DNA in a pregnant woman's blood is maternal DNA, not fetal DNA, it can be hard to do that analysis. The claim methods create a fraction of DNA with a higher proportion of fetal DNA by applying the discovery that the majority of fetal DNA has a relatively small size, while the majority of the extracellular maternal DNA has a larger size. Okay, so what was the panel's reasoning in holding the claims patent eligible, and what changes did the panel and dissent make in the reissued opinion? The panel majority concluded that although the inventors discovered a natural phenomenon that was reflected in the claims, that did not necessarily mean that the claims are directed to that natural phenomenon. 
the specific claim elements here were not dictated by any natural phenomenon, but instead were human engineered parameters, namely the relative lengths of the fetal and maternal DNA. The majority also pointed out that the claim methods don't simply detect the presence of a correlation or a natural phenomenon, like in the Ariosa case. Instead, they include physical process steps that change the composition of the DNA mixture, resulting in something that's different from what occurs in nature. The text that the panel majority added in its reissued opinion clarifies that the claims are patent eligible because they exploit the underlying natural phenomenon during the preparation of a sample to remove some of the maternal DNA, and thus they alter the composition of the DNA sample. Now, in the reissued dissent by Judge Reyna, he states that the claims involve natural phenomenon and therefore are necessarily directed to the natural phenomenon. Judge Reyna states that his conclusion is bolstered by the court's precedents including the Ariosa and Athena cases that look to the so-called claimed advance when determining whether a claim is directed to a natural phenomenon. He states that here, the claimed advance is the natural phenomenon itself, namely the inventor's discovery about the different sizes of maternal and fetal cell-free DNA. All right. And in another decision, XYLLC versus Transova Genetics LC, Issue July 31, a Federal Circuit panel reversed a Colorado District Court judge's finding that a patent covering a way of selectively breeding cattle and other mammals doesn't hold up under the U.S. Supreme Court's Alice decision. What was significant about that decision? So this is just yet another case where the district court granted a motion for judgment on the pleadings and invalidated the patent under 101, but here the Federal Circuit reversed that judgment. The court concluded in its analysis of Alice Step 1 that the asserted claims are not directed to an abstract idea, but instead to a patent-eligible improvement of the underlying idea. The patent and suit claimed improved methods of sorting particles using flow cytometry. And while conventional methods would throw out particles whenever they were hard to distinguish from other particles, the claim methods here employ a different approach to data analysis that allows the cytometry apparatus to more accurately classify and sort the particles in real time. One application is that the claim methods can actually distinguish male-determining sperm cells from female-determining sperm cells, which is pretty cool. The court explained that the claim methods weren't simply directed to the underlying mathematical equation that allowed the data analysis, but instead apply mathematical formulas and achieve the improved result only when combined with the specific detectors and other flow cytometry limitations in the claims. Charles, all these decisions clearly show that Section 101 continues to evolve. How do you see these decisions fitting in the bigger picture of jurisprudence around patent eligibility? Do you see any broad themes emerging? I do. So one theme is the decisions show the Federal Circuit is continuing to disagree about how to apply the Supreme Court's Allison Mayo test, which requires deciding whether a claim is directed to an abstract idea, law of nature, or natural phenomenon. I think unsurprisingly, that's proving to be a really hard inquiry and it's dividing the court. There's perhaps no better example of that than the fact that there was a dispute in both American Axel and the Illumina versus Ariosa case as to how to articulate the underlying natural law or natural phenomenon. The court can't even agree what the natural phenomenon is that they're looking at in these cases. In some ways, this is an instance of the more things change, the more they stay the same. The courts long disagreed about whether something's directed to an underlying idea or instead is a practical application of that idea. And we can look to Supreme Court cases as well, Bilski in 2009, Deere in 1981, or O'Reilly versus Morris in 1853. So I don't expect that to change anytime soon. I think the disputes will continue. But these cases do add something new. So American Axel has now drawn 
a direct line from O'Reilly versus Morris to the claims at issue in the American Axel case and has arguably set out a, a new test or at least a new framing of what the court argues is an existing test, depending on how you look at it. Regardless of whether there is a new test, one thing is crystal clear. We are increasingly seeing aspects of the Section 112 analysis bleeding into the Section 101 inquiry. As we talked about on the podcast last year, when the original American Axel panel opinion issued, the court wants to see sufficient detail in the claims themselves, not just in the patent specification, to describe how the invention applies or transforms any underlying idea and how it improves on conventional technology. The revised panel opinion, if anything, injects Section 112 even more into the Section 101 inquiry. Now, the Alice and Mayo tests have long been criticized for blending together Section 101 with the novelty requirement under Section 102. Now, American Axel and some other recent cases are essentially requiring patent owners to prove that the claims themselves have sufficient detail to survive 112. That's what Judge Moore said in her dissent, has imbued Section 101 with a new superpower, enablement on steroids. One concern that many of the judges express is that these cases tend to arise in the context of an early dispositive motion, like a motion to dismiss or for judgment on the pleadings. And yet section 112 is a really fact-based inquiry and it's not typically appropriate to resolve at that early stage. So one trend I see is patent applicants really need to consider how to draft claims of varying scope and make sure that they are specifically writing claims that explain how a claim method achieves its purpose and how it extends beyond any underlying natural law or abstract idea. You now, as a patent owner, need to be prepared for your claims to withstand an enablement-like analysis on their own without drawing on the specification and possibly at a very early phase of your case, judgment on the pleadings or even a 12B6 motion. Okay, well, we'll leave it there. Charles, thanks so much for your insight. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Our guest has been Charles Collins Chase, a partner at Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.